Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Good to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. So much news this week, you guys. Well, well, it's funny. We were at the production meeting yesterday, and we were like, eh, you know, I don't love all these stories. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the Alex Jones trial uh, goes off the rails, which we're going to talk to uh, the person who's covering that for us, Christine DeRosa. Haley and I spoke with her. Um, and then also, late yesterday and then today, a couple of, couple of big uh, cases hit the newswire um, that are really at the beginning of their respective journeys, and I'm sure we'll revisit these as, as coverage warrants. Uh, first of all, a bunch of uh, professional golfers, 11 to be exact, sued the PGA Tour for the uh, restrictions. They've, th- th- those players have basically been barred from playing on the PGA because they have joined a rival promotion funded by the Saudi Arabian government. And this has really sort of been a, been a you know, driven a wedge in the golf world. Um, and now it has spilled into federal court because these players basically say that the PGA operates like a monopoly. Uh, I always think that's an interesting tactic. There's a lot of sports-related stories that touch on competition law. Oh, yeah. And it's, um, it's always fascinating to me, you know, how those things are intertwined. Yeah, and that's that's going to get pretty ugly because um, these these are these are uh, both sides here have just deep pockets and they are ready to go all the way. I would I I would surmise. And also this morning, Thursday, um, uh, the Department of Justice charged four current and former Louisville police officers who were involved in the uh, now sort of in the very tragic uh, raid on the apartment of Breonna Taylor in March of 2020. Of course, this was one of the sort of galvanizing incidents in the uh, Black Lives Matter protests that sprung up in the middle of that year. Um, some pretty serious civil rights charges and other charges at play there in those documents. Um, most notably that a couple of these officers lied to obtain the warrant that was used to uh, search the home that Breonna Taylor was in. And so, obviously, the we will be following that very closely. Um, it's a very emotional case um, and a very important one. So, uh, lots to get to, and we have um, the Alex Jones segment later on. Stay tuned for that. He might need some new legal counsel. That's not for me to say. <laughs> but we have some interesting news to get to first. Haley, what do you have for us? Yeah, well, I want to say also, I think... Um Perhaps let this be a lesson to us that we we shouldn't ever comment on it being a light news week during a production meeting on a Wednesday because sure. there's just so much time left for things to happen. But yes. but before we dive into into everything else here, I want to talk about a really interesting case involving Visa that's out here in California. Now, it's a fairly upsetting ordeal. The plaintiff is a young woman who says a sexually explicit video of her from when she was 13 years old was uploaded to Pornhub without her knowledge or consent. Now, she's sued MindGeek, which owns Pornhub and um, a bunch of other porn sites, alleging that the websites contain a plethora of easily accessible child porn and she's also alleging that Visa knew this, but still provided MindGeek with its payment network. So a California federal judge just issued a landmark ruling allowing those conspiracy claims against Visa to proceed. Ultimately, the ruling has implications for all payment processors 
and really the extent to which they can be held liable for criminal conduct online. Yeah, that's fascinating because often, you know, they make the argument that they're just offering a payment service. They have nothing to do with what the actual payment is for. So I want to get really into that. But first, set us up here. I know we have to get into some upsetting details to understand what's going on, but tell us about the case. The young woman says her boyfriend at the time pressured her into making this video, um, and it was uploaded to Pornhub in 2014. By the time she discovered it, the video had racked up about 400,000 views. And the title of the video, um, which I'm going to share because it's really central to her claims here, the title is 13-Year-Old Brunette Shows Off for the Camera. And that's important because, you know, it it spells out literally in this title that she was a child. And still, she says she had a really hard time getting it taken down. MindGeek was not super helpful, was not very quick with getting it down. And then it got downloaded and re-uploaded a million times. As you can imagine, this really ruined her life. Um, And she's claiming this is not an isolated incident. According to her suit, MindGeek's websites are chock full of child porn. And the company fails to police them for that content because, hey, it makes money off of it. And that is where Visa enters the picture. The woman claims that Visa knew about MindGeek's child porn problem. She says it had to have known because Visa performed reviews of the sites as part of its own due diligence, and then also because PayPal super publicly stopped working with MindGeek in 2019 for this exact reason. It issued, PayPal issued like this huge statement saying there's a child porn problem. We're no longer going to work with MindGeek sites and Visa just kept on trucking. You don't have to be a a sort of consumer protection expert to see why something like this would uh, really put a scare into a company like Visa or any other vendor that you can, it's like, it takes very minimal effort, you know, in, you know, today's modern times to just like lend yourself out as a vendor to any site that might even at first blush seem somewhat legitimate. Um, What kinds of defenses has Visa raised? Visa's central argument is that it, can't be liable as a payment processor because it had, you know, little or no say in what MindGeek chooses to allow on its websites. Visa says uh, everything alleged in the suit stems from the actions of other parties, not Visa. And the involvement of all these other third parties, like, for instance, the the woman's ex-boyfriend um, and all the people who shared or viewed the video, all of that means that she doesn't have the standing to go after Visa. Okay, um, I understand Visa's argument, but it seems like the judge was unconvinced. So what did the judge have to say about that? U.S. District Judge Cormac Carney found the allegations in the suit plausibly do tie Visa to the purported criminal child porn conspiracy. He did not mince words in his order. He said he can, quote unquote, comfortably infer that Visa intended to help MindGeek monetize the child porn on its websites by providing the tool needed to complete that crime. And the judge noted that when Visa eventually did suspend MindGeek's merchant privileges, 
the company was allegedly forced to remove 10 million of its videos. That is a staggering 80% of its content. Wow. This is what Judge Carney wrote. Here is Visa standing at and controlling the valve, insisting that it cannot be blamed for the water spillage. Oh, man. Um, Now, I mean, I really don't, you know, I'm certainly not trying to make light of anything here, but I just I really would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at Visa HQ when a federal judge says you have been credibly accused of propping up a child porn conspiracy. Um, What have they taken any forward facing action in regard to this? Yeah, the company issued a statement right after this ruling saying it condemns sex trafficking, exploitation, and child abuse materials. Um, It called the ruling disappointing, said it mischaracterizes Visa's role and its policies and practices. Um, You know, it said the the standard Visa will not tolerate the use of our network for illegal activity. We continue to believe that Visa is an improper defendant in this case. But actually, the big thing happened earlier today. um, And of course, as always, we're recording this on Thursday, Earlier today, Visa announced that it will also be suspending payments for advertising on Pornhub um, and other MindGeek sites, and that is directly in response to the order. What it means is Visa cards will not be able to be used to purchase advertising on any MindGeek sites. And actually, what's perhaps even more noteworthy than this is MasterCard made a similar announcement today. Um, even though MasterCard is not involved in this litigation. So while this is a ruling that came down pretty early in the litigation and only has to do with this one payment processor, it's already having a pretty big impact on how the payment processor industry wants to operate in in this space. The old self-imposed injunction. Uh, you really don't. You really don't see it that much. Um, thanks, Haley. Obviously, uh, huge ramifications in that case. We'll definitely keep an eye on it. Uh, let's move now. Um, I want to move to what is easily Pro Se's most beloved segment. Uh, also, though, crucially, it's most infrequent, uh, most intermittent. Uh, it's time, of course, Steve. Uh, cue up the non-existent music drop. Uh, it's trade law with a law. Oh, thank God. The crowd goes I've wild. missed it. <laughs> I've missed it so much. I do believe this is Haley's first experience um, interacting with trade law with a law. You're in for a treat. I I just want to say, you know, I would liken trade law with a law to be somewhat like a Frank Ocean record. You wait and you wait and you wait for years and it's it's finally there and it's beautiful. Wow. That feels right. Uh, first, Well, first of all, Frank Ocean is a genius, and that is way too lofty a comparison <laughs> for what we're about to do here. But thank you, Haley. That's extremely nice of you to say, not to uh, up the expectations here or anything. Okay, so it's trade law with A-Law. Uh, this week, we are checking in on uh, a long-running battle over the just uh, reams of tariffs on Billions of dollars worth of Chinese goods that were imposed by former President Donald Trump 
which have crucially been kept in place uh, by the Biden administration. Now, there was uh, a bunch of importers have challenged the legality of these tariffs. It's been relatively quiet because it just isn't the kind of thing that grabs a lot of front page headlines. But there are some pretty novel issues at play, and there's just a ton, a, a ton of money at stake. So I wanted to uh, break it down a little bit. So, um, you know, it's no secret that the Trump administration just had a lot of trade fights just mm-hmm. beefing around the world. You don't need to tell and, me. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of fights specifically with China. I mean, that was often in his speeches and in the news a ton for several years. I don't remember which ones we're talking about, though. Can you kind of reorient where we are? Yeah, they kind of bleed together a little bit. Um, it is This is about China, as I said, and as you already intimated there. The tariff fight with China began with an investigation under a U.S. trade law that's known for our purposes as Section 301. And it was focused on investigating China's intellectual property rules and these rules that require you to hand over sensitive technology to the Chinese government as a condition of doing business there. The U.S. government found that those policies are an unfair trade barrier, and they set tariffs on about $50 billion worth of Chinese goods, sort of as as punishment, as a means to pressure them to change these rules. But then things really escalated. China retaliated with tariffs of its own. The U.S. re-retaliates. This goes on for like a year and a half. And uh, before you know it, the U.S. has duties on almost all Chinese products entering the U.S. It's like close to $500 billion, depending on how you count. I know you hate to call things a trade war, but this is pretty close. It's about as close as I would get. I just don't like terms that like don't have definitions. Anyway, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had that. I've, I've been on that. I've ridden that hobby horse enough. But uh, and that's when the lawsuits started to file in. Importers sued the government uh, in the uh, U.S. Court of International Trade court near and dear to my heart. Um, and they basically allege, there's there's a lot of claims, but they basically allege that you can't use Section 301 this way, that it's meant to resolve a specific problem with a specific remedy. And they say that that first hit that I talked about with tariffs covering $50 billion as a means of a specific response to these uh, policies that were found to be unfair trade barriers, that's fine. That's That was like what the government found, and that's what you decided to address it. But you can't use it to just justify this endless series of escalating tariffs and counter tariffs and things like that. So they basically say they exceeded the authority. Now, it's an enormous case, and it's believed to be the first head-on challenge of Section 301. Frankly, it doesn't get used that often, and it has never been used on a trading partner of this size and to this extent. And at this point, I think last I checked, there's at least 7,000 importers that have filed um, basically saying that these tariffs are no good. Um, so okay, seven thousand. It's basically any. It's basically any company that ever imports anything. Like you really can't overstate like the amount of eyeballs that were on this case. Sometimes I think MDLs get really big. Like oh sure, they're looping in a lot of stuff. But seven thousand trade cases is pretty wild. I stuff. think it's more. That's just I'm being. I that, yeah. that's what I know to be sure. They they, mm-hmm. they trickle in like every day. It's 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 more than that. Okay, so how's that going for all of these people that are challenging what happened here? Yeah, well, so it took a while to even sort of decide how to like handle this stuff like structurally. As I said, there's there's thousands of companies that and lawsuits are still trickling in. They're basically making the same arguments. The court selected the first few companies that filed, and that's a test case now. And that's uh, been moving, and the other companies are kind of waiting to see how the court rules. 
Now, that court is that that case is on pretty thin ice at the moment, because in April, uh, the three judge CIT panel, which I should say normally only one judge hears cases in that court, you get three judge panels for either constitutional issues or, as in this case, something that's of crucial importance to the trade bar. So it's a big deal that there's three judges hearing this. Um, that panel shot down almost all of the importer's claims, including the kind of central argument that the government doesn't have the authority to build upon its initial round of tariffs with new tariffs. The government says, uh, we read this law to say you definitely can do that. Sorry. Um, but the opinion did criticize the government on one kind of small thing that could maybe turn into a big, a, a big thing. During the time that it was considering imposing these tariffs, um, the administration, following basic administrative law, asked for public comments about, like, we're considering doing these on these products. What do you, what do you think about that? Most companies that responded were importers who hated this. They said, I mean, we are the ones, we, the importers, are the ones who have to pay these duties. We, if it gets bad enough, we have to pass those on to our customers. We lose sales this way. Etc. That was that comprised the bulk of the comments that the agency received. But what the court said is that the agency didn't sufficiently address any of those concerns when it moved forward with these tariffs. It basically just says it moved ahead with the duties and didn't explain. It's like, hey, you have like 90 percent of the people don't want this. You at least have to explain why you're not bound by that, like overwhelming majority, but you have to at least explain it. So it ordered uh, the U.S. Trade Representative to do a little bit of a tricky dance here. They had to go back into the record. There's like 9,000 comments filed. You have to look at these thousands of comments and give us an explanation of why these arguments against the tariffs are or are not compelling to you. They basically say, you can keep this, dis you can keep these tariffs if you want, but you have to better explain why you're doing it over these like voluminous protests. Dang. And you've got to really go through so much to get there. I mean, what it what does the answer look like? Are they going through and yeah, so they they filed their remand. That's what we're talking about this week. On Monday, they filed the remand that is meant to address this question okay. by the court. Now, they are actually undergoing like a statutory review of the tariffs um, that you have to do every four years. And it's four years now. So they were hopefully kind of trying to start to do some of this stuff anyway, but it's an exhaustive filing. It's about 90 pages long and it just goes through all of the product categories that were considered for tariffs after that initial $50 billion hit. And it was, it was possible that they could have gone back and decided and like seen, you know, seen God and decided to rescind the tariffs. Nobody really thought they were going to do that. Um, but they did tackle these critics in a more sort of head on way and a lot of people, it was like, it was pretty anticipated among the trade bar because USTR, the U.S. trade representative, doesn't really doesn't get sued a lot and doesn't get a lot of remands. And this is just such a novel area of the law. But we basically got a 90 page document that walks through and says, we hear your objections, uh, you, the importing community, but we're not that convinced. Uh, it doesn't outweigh the better interests of um, putting pressure on China, punishing China. Um, for what they are doing to us. So that doesn't entirely surprise me, Alex, you know, that they were like, no, we considered this before. We'll tell you yet again that we considered it and we are standing by it. Yeah. Is the court going to be like, OK, well, that's the open question now. Um, and we're going to have to see. Now, one thing that the 
um, attorneys for the importers have stressed, and they stressed this when the April decision came down, is that there is key precedent here that says when an agency is ordered to do something like this, go back and better explain their motives, they are only allowed to expand on the reasons they gave. They're not allowed to give new reasons after the fact. Now, that's pretty weedy, but you can see how that's a little bit of a fine line. Anytime you introduce something, there's there's a degree of newness to it, right? So it's like, is it a, is it a, a new way of explaining an old reason or is it an entirely new reason? Um, but honestly, it's the only point that the importers have won on and the entire case is kind of hanging by that very delicate thread. So I don't know. Um, this is trade law with a law, and this is interesting to me. So uh, <laughs> you've made it interesting to all of us. That'll do it for us. Um, so yeah, that that remand is in, and uh, all eyes are going to turn to the panel now and see how they uh, how they read it. A Texas jury has ordered right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay over $4 million in damages for spreading falsehoods about the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut. The verdict capped off a trial that was at turns adversarial, emotional, and at times downright bizarre. The proceedings saw both Jones and his legal team repeatedly reprimanded by the judge, while opposing counsel also delivered a bombshell about Jones's lawyers inadvertently turning over evidence that they tried to bury. We're joined now by Law 360's Christine DeRosa, who has been covering the trial to break down the surreal scene that is playing out down in that Texas courtroom. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, this tr this trial was uh, and has been full of uh, insane moments, uh, which we will soon get to. Um, but I want to just get us situated here a little bit because Alex Jones has been tied up in this Sandy Hook litigation for the better part of a decade. And he has already been found to have defamed these parents who are suing him. And now we're talking about damages. So just catch us up a little bit here, how we got to the trial and what the jury decided. Like you said, it's been about 10 years, but Alex Jones years ago, right after Sandy Hook occurred, started sharing conspiracy theories that Sandy Hook was a hoax. The Sandy Hook parents sued him, claiming he defamed them, inflicted intentional emotional distress on them and anguish. These parents, specifically in this case, sued him in a Texas court asking for $150 million for the damages. A court yesterday, the jury awarded 4.1 million, with most of that money going to the mother, Scarlett Lewis, in this specific case. She was, they determined she should get about, um, what was that, at 4 million. And the father, Neil Heslin, $100,000. So, you know, they fell um, obviously quite short of what they had been asking for, but I know there are more steps to go here. And we'll talk about that, uh, I think, when we wrap up. But, you know, because the, the, the saga here is going to continue. But I do want to, talk about the trial itself um, and, you know, which made quite a stir, you know, it, it sort of drew in 
know, casual rubberneckers, people who aren't even really, you know, involved in the legal uh, profession or anything like that. Um, you were following it uh, more closely than most. Um, how would you how would you just describe the overall vibe of these proceedings? I would describe it as tension filled, whether that's between Jones and the, the parents or Jones and the judge, but also the other attorneys kind of with each other and also the judge. It's been an interesting dynamic to see all these parties at play. Um, I mean, there's an instance alone where I think it was one of the first few days of testimony where Jones's attorney was talked to repeatedly by the judge. And one specific instance where the plaintiff's attorneys kind of said he'd been calling them personal injury attorneys in a derogatory fashion. The judge talked to him about that. He said he was sorry. And after the judge left the room, the tensions kind of came to to a high resulting in Jones's attorney getting in the other attorney's face, giving him the finger, and then kind of having to be separated. And, you know, he said he apologized in court the next day. But it was just really interesting to see, you know, especially on a live stream where thousands of people are watching and there's hot mics, these attorneys getting into it like that. Yeah, um, that I mean, that's that's a good little taste of exactly the kind of uh, it's it, I think tension filled is probably accurate description by you. Um, and I would be remiss. We should probably just get to what I think is sort of the, you know, the big uh, sort of central moment here that everyone's talking about. I want to talk about what led Jones to say that the other side, that the 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 plaintiff's attorneys were having what he called the Perry Mason moment, which basically lit up the legal Internet for a few hours uh, I think most people know what we're talking about, but just walk us through what what, what that was like to see. I, I think it's still to this day, days later, lighting up legal internet with memes and just everything. So basically what happened, um, Jones was being cross-examined by the plaintiff's attorneys, and he was asked a question, and the attorney pulled up something, and a piece of evidence, and it was text messages. And... He handed Jones a document, said, is this your phone number on this document? Which Jones confirmed. And it was de- was determined that what was on the screen was a text message from Alex Jones. Uh, and basically, Jones said, oh, so you did get my text. Nice try. The plaintiff's attorney laughed and said, no, your attorney accidentally overturned your entire phone, which is about 27 months of all of his text messages and about 300 gigabytes of data. So... Jones, you could see, is, is, is gobsmacked at this moment. It was crazy. You didn't give this text message to me. You don't, you don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years and when informed did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text message about saying you Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone and then- Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I, did you I, know I, this happened? No, no, I didn't know this happened. But I mean, I told you I gave them the phone over. Just, just and you said, question. you said, in your deposition, you searched your phone. You said 
you pulled down the text, did the search function for Sandy Hook. That's what you said, Mr. Jones, correct? And I had several several different phones with this number, but I did, yeah. Well, of course, I mean, that's why you got it. No, Mr. Jones, that's not why I My lawyer sent it to you, but I'm hiding it. Okay. Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones, that? just answer questions. There's no question. Mr. Bankston also only asked questions. Sure. Mr. Jones, in discovery, you were asked, do you have Sandy Hook text messages on your phone? And you said no. Correct. You said that under oath, Mr. Jones, didn't you? I mean, if I was mistaken, I was mistaken, but you, you got the messages right there. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. I mean, we, I mean, you can't just glide past the central thing here that in open court, the opposing counsel says to the guy on the stand, your lawyer's accidentally sent me this like this all this evidence your entire phone for the last two years uh also i mean this the the the, the clip is funny enough itself i would definitely encourage people to check out the video uh where the the plaintiff's attorney like gestures to jones attorneys and the camera kind of moves down and he's kind of just sitting there and he's like doing like the thinking pose he's got his hand over his mouth he's like this is going really well, I think. Um, <laughs> anyway, that was a crazy moment. It was as, as you as you well described. Um, I mean, can you contextualize that for us? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, but like, why that's such a huge deal uh, in this case specifically that this phone was accidentally turned over. It's it's not even just a huge deal in this case. It's a huge deal, and I'm sure what we'll talk about is his upcoming defamation trials related to Sandy Hook. Yeah, because. The reason those trials are ongoing is because Jones didn't participate in discovery and meaning he didn't turn over his phone records or text about Sandy Hook claiming he didn't have any. But now these attorneys have literally every phone record, not just related to Sandy Hook. So it's kind of a big deal if you think about it that way from an evidence standpoint. And then can we talk about some of the fallout from this specific phone incident? I know that uh, the next day they asked for a mistrial based on this. And then now there's also implications for where else this this phone data could end up. Could you just kind of situate us there? Yeah. So yesterday, while well, the or Thursday, rather, when the jury was still deliberating, Jones's attorneys asked for a mistrial, claiming they you know, didn't have time to, to accurately review the data that was on the phone. And he asked for 10 days from Wednesday when the data was you know, presented to Jones on the stand, which the judge said, if you would have turned it over when you were supposed to, which was about a year ago, you would have accurately had that time. Mm -hmm. And she said, she's not giving them a mistrial because of this. And then we also have the other parties that are requesting this, according to the plaintiff's attorney, is the January 6th committee who's investigating the attack on the US Capitol. I contacted their their press person who would not comment on that, would not confirm or deny as of yesterday afternoon. But it's interesting because the attorney for the plaintiffs let slip that there are texts between Alex Jones and Roger Stone on that phone. You also, the other party requesting that are the plaintiffs in the Connecticut case that's coming up in September. And there's an agreement where they can share information uh, between the two cases. So there's a very good chance that they will also get Jones's phone. So that has very interesting implications ahead of that trial as well. 
The other part of this is that Jones is still hosting his show on Infowars, or he was he was still hosting it as the trial is going on. He wasn't in court every day, but sometimes he would he would broadcast and then go to court. Um, and his broadcasts are, I mean, if 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 you even have a passing familiarity, they can often be quite inflammatory, very um, elaborate, conspiracy laden at times. How did? How did like that ongoing? How did those ongoing broadcasts um, affect the dynamic at trial? It just fueled the tension that was already there. I mean, he clips were being brought in from his shows, whether it be the afternoon or the morning. I mean, there is one clip it's like an assembly show- line. He's 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 creating <laughs> evidence in real time. Pretty much. I mean, there were multiple clips. Um, one just quick references. He put the judge that's overseeing the trial covered in flames on his show. And then that was brought into court. So that was interesting. But the main piece that was brought into court was this clip that Jones did about one of the parents that he was, you know, in court with. That parent, Neil Heslin, testified while Jones was recording this. So it was like a real-time situation. Jones was not in the courtroom. Heslin was. He was testifying. And Jones was calling him slow on his show, saying, oh, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he just seems kind of slow. And that clip got played in court while Heslin's ex-wife, Scarlett Lewis, was on the stand. So she got to kind of confront him on that. Yeah, I mean, the the parents' confrontations with Jones is another thing I wanted to talk about. You know, there's there's been lots of absurd stuff gone, gone on, and it it's be- became somewhat theatrical. But at, at the bottom, this is still a case that was brought on by the by the shooting of 20 school children. Um, and this is a, a, a case that saw, um, like you said, Scarlett Lewis, I thought, gave very compelling testimony from what I saw. She's it's a very intimate. It's a, it seems to be a very small courtroom. And she's like on the stand and she's often addressing Jones directly in her testimony. Can you break down? I mean, it was a pretty emotional scene. Can you just break down sort of what that was like, um, what she had to say? It, it was emotional testimony, and it, it lasted quite some time. And you're right, it, it's a small courtroom, and she was staring directly at Jones. And the moment that really sticks out to me, that I feel like sums up their interaction, was she asked Jones, you know, do you believe I'm an actress? As she's on the stand looking directly at him, and he's shaking his head um, as if saying no. And she's saying, you know, like, you're still lying about this to this day. And you know it happened. You know Sandy Hook happened. So why are you continuing to lie? Jesse was real. I am a real mom. There's nothing out there. Nothing. There's records of Jesse's birth, of, of me. I mean, I have, I have a history. And there's nothing that you could have found. Because it doesn't exist that I'm deep state. I, it's just not true. I know you know that. That's the problem. I know you know that. And you keep saying it. You keep saying it. Why? Why? For money? Because you've made a lot of money while you've said it. I know you're... I mean... I know you believe me. And yet you're going to get, you're going to leave this courthouse and you're going to say it again on your show. You're saying no, you just did it. And there's points where Jones actually went to go stand and kind of address her and the, and his attorney had to kind of be like, no, 
that no, don't, please don't do that. Uh, it, it was just a lot. And of course, she's sharing stuff about her six-year-old who is, who, as she said on the stand, was shot in the forehead at six when he was at school in a place he's supposed to be safe. So that kind of through line of how her son died also kind of played to that tension and emotion. So we know now that Jones owes $4.1 million in damages, um, but there are many more steps to go here, including in this very case. Can you just kind of lay out the path forward here? Because this is far from over as, as, a, as, a, as a big legal saga. Yeah, it, as a legal saga, it's very much still beginning. As we're recording this, the jury is hearing evidence for punitive damages. There's, you know, I believe it's a forensic economist currently testifying as we're recording about Jones's finances and how much his companies are bringing in. So the jury can, you know, determine punitive damages. And then, like I've referenced earlier, we have a Connecticut case that's coming up or scheduled in September, but that could be impacted by last week's bankruptcy filing that Jones did in, in Texas court. Um, I believe actually this morning, the Connecticut families, there's eight in that case and eight Sandy Hook families mm-hmm. are going to court to make sure that their date for of September 6th can stay and not be impacted, you know, through a stay from these bankruptcy proceedings. And then after that, which is much farther out, we have a second Texas case. And they're all defamation, similar things, because he didn't you know, participate in discovery. So these two trials will be kind of a repeat of what we just saw happen in Texas. And we'll be keeping an eye on it as it moves to Connecticut court. So this is a far from over legal saga. Christine DeRosa, um, you did a great job covering this trial for us. It's obviously uh, uh, had uh, certainly had its share of dramatic flair, um, and it's a very serious uh, issue at the heart of it. So thanks so much for uh, uh, breaking it down for us. Thank you. to end our show is something offbeat and today I want to talk about a judge being suspended. It's something we've definitely covered many times in offbeat before but this one has a special connection to Law 360. So do you guys remember? Yeah. Uh, Do you guys remember the Tennessee judge? He's a state judge. Jonathan Lee Young. He's the guy who was DQ'd from an opioid case against Endo Pharmaceuticals over his social media remarks and how he was talking a lot to the press, including our own reporters here at Law360. So this week, he was suspended by the State Board of Judicial Conduct for continuing to talk to the media and also having an affair with a woman in an adoption case before his court. The suspension lasts for about a month, and um, that ends at the time when his current term on the bench also ends. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how humbly midwestern reaction. of you, Haley. Thank you. Um, the uh, oh no! Um, you know, I remember when this story popped up—the the first one about him getting getting kicked off the Endo case—and I do remember thinking he seemed like a little bit of an oddball. Now that's just me reading kind of between the lines of the things he was saying about this case before him. That was just kind of my own impression. Turns out that's maybe a little bit of an understatement in terms of the things he gets up to. But uh, what do we, what do we, what what yeah. do we have to know here? Let's yeah. start with the easy part, the part about Law 360. Um, so for anybody who wants a really 
bigger refresher on this guy and what happened with Endo, we did include it in episode 245. So go back and listen to our breakdown of it all there. But here's the gist. In April, a Tennessee appeals court panel wiped out Judge Young's decision that Endo was liable in that opioid abuse um, case because of discovery misconduct. So it seems as though that misconduct was real, but the problem is that um, they the, the panel found that the judge seemed, quote, antagonistic to the interests of those in the pharmaceutical industry. The reason the panel found that is because he had discussed the opioid litigation in a bunch of Facebook posts and also in an interview with Law360. And I think he'd spoken out to some other media outlets as well. Yes. So when the conduct board asked the judge about this incident and to respond to the complaint that got forward to them from Endo about all of this, uh, about the Facebook posts and all the rest of it, um, he basically doubled down. He, here's, here's what the conduct board said. Quote, he also asserted without citing any legal authority that as a judge, he essentially enjoyed a constitutional right to say and do as he pleased in the media and on social media platforms concerning cases assigned to his court. Uh, so he's like, hey, nah, man, now listen, I can do it. I'm not a judicial ethicist or anything. I think he does have a constitutional right to do that. Um, and he's not in jail for it. Uh, he is, however, there are, uh, of course, conflict of interest issues and that arise. Repercussions. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so he not only doubled down in how he responded to this conduct board, but he continued to talk to the media. I mean, he talked to some other outlets, talked to Law360 again. Um, this is obviously wasn't a surprise to us that he felt this way because in one of his interviews with Law360, he said this. We are stuck in a world right now where we've got some young judges who understand social media and some older judges who don't. Ooh. Oh, man. Like, well, yeah. the boomers are trying <sighs> to get me down is what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I also think uh, this judge is in his mid 40s. And so I like that he's keeping me on the young side of the line. Yeah. So it's maybe the only big thing I like in this. Story. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, so this is all, you know interesting and we we love to see law 360 thrown into the mix always love it um but what's really lingering at the forefront of my mind here is you mentioned an affair yeah uh this is some pretty bad conduct by any standard so he started an affair last spring with a married woman and signed off on her husband's adoption of her child they were appearing in his court um the judge started communications that the conduct panel says ranged from flirtatious to sexual with this woman. He asked her for explicit pictures. He met her multiple times outside of the court, including at a hotel. Um, he failed to recuse himself from the case. And he eventually was confronted by the woman's husband, who believed that he was betrayed by the court. That, you know, well, I'd say so, affair, Amber, wouldn't you, if this is true? Well, I mean, in addition to just the wife having an affair, I mean, it was the judge that was deciding on your case. So it's, yes. you know, bad all around. Um, and here's where it gets even worse, as if it can. Uh, this isn't the first time Judge Young has landed in a bunch of hot water from this uh, conduct board for sexual misconduct or social media use. He mashed the two together in some previous bad acts. In October 2020, 
the board had publicly reprimanded him for sending sexual messages on various social media platforms to a bunch of women who had appeared before his court over a five-year period. That's so crazy. (laughs) Yeah. The recipients were pretty wide-ranging. It included an employee of a firm with cases in his court, a litigant in another child custody case, um, basically anyone who caught his eye, I guess. And and the messages were pretty explicit. And um, a lot of what's what's the conduct board said it this way. And this has been repeatedly stated in the media. And I'll let you read into what this means exactly. But most of the messages included a photo of the judge in his robe. I mean, the guy's got a rap sheet here. Uh, mm. You know, the pattern of behavior. I mean, that's that's really pretty gnarly. I mean, it's yeah. one thing to like do it once. Right. To be reprimanded for something like this one time but to just like i think there's allegedly... a clear pattern here regardless of what his bad conduct is where you know he's reprimanded for these sexually explicit messages and then he goes on to have a additional full-blown affair after the fact he's uh his ruling gets kicked out in the indo case because of his facebook posts and his conduct and talking to the media and then after that happens he talks to the media some more and says why you know other judges just don't understand social media so this doesn't seem to be a judge that was great at learning lessons well i i i do want to go back to that yeah well that's 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 putting it politely i um i do want to go back you just mentioned it when he said there there are we've got some young judges who understand social media and some older judges who don't he reached out to these women I think it's fair to say he unders he certainly understands social media in the sense that it can be used. Does he? I, I wouldn't say that he has a good sense of how it ought to be used. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, he understands given, given how to now. send a message. Oh, sure. That's what I'm saying. When that is appropriate or the kinds of things you maybe don't want a record of. All of that. All of that. Yeah. So it's quite the twisty saga. I mean, I think my my last comment here for all of our listeners is the Endo case itself might not be as juicy as a story about an affair and some illicit messages, but it is really fascinating conduct about a judge speaking out so publicly, particularly on social media, on Facebook. So if any of that just sort of piques your interest, we've got a bunch of coverage of it. Emily Field and Jeff Overly wrote about that case extensively for Law 60, so people should check out our website. Definitely second that. Jeff and Emily uh, always do an awesome job on that beat. Um, guys, I I say we just pull the plug on this thing before something else crazy happens. <laughs> it seems like a smart plan, Alex. Very Thanks a lot wise. for being with me today, both of you guys. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Christine DeRosa, and our contributing reporters, Emily Field and Hannah Albarazzi. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se and all the crazy stories we've been talking about lately, go on over to wherever you're listening to the show right now. Leave us a five-star review and a written review. That definitely helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you head on over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. And we'll see you back here next week. 